Today we have a unique offering, two guests in one body, the world-renowned spiritual guide and comedian Swami Beyondananda, and also the author, activist Steve Behrman. Strap your seatbelt and prepare for an insightful, provocative education on social and spiritual issues and an uproariously funny time, as Swami Beyondananda presents his philosophy of fundamentalism with the accent on the fun and leads us into the great uprising. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy, founder of the Integral Recovery Movement. And in order to introduce our guest today, I have to tell you a little bit about myself, because I've tended over my life to be a little too serious. And a few years back, I decided a great way to loosen up would be to to do a course, which was offered in San Francisco by San Francisco Comedy College, teaching how to do stand-up comedy. And I thought that sounded like a great idea to loosen me up, and I'd spent a lot of time on stages, so I figured it wouldn't be that challenging. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> Turns out it's a whole nother world, and one in which I didn't have a lot of skill. But I really wanted to use comedy in the service of something more than just just humor itself. I wanted to use it in the service of of getting a messages about politics, spirituality, some deep ideas through the medium of comedy. So, as part of the training, we wrote our comedy sketch and was videotaped, and I brought it home to my showed it proudly to show to my wife and played it for her. And there was this prolonged silence afterwards, at which point she said, you're actually more of a preacher than a comedian. So I decided that I, I was best that I have a very short and uh, unsuccessful career as a stand-up comedian. But a few years later, I went to hear a comedy act by Swami Beyond Ananda, and I was just loved it. This was what I'd wanted to be, do and be when I grew up. I, Swami Beyondananda really was not only incredibly funny, but used humor in the service of awakening, of political commentary, of insight and a kind of lightness in the face of the great, great issues of our time. So today we have two guests for you. We have the comedian Swami Beyondananda, and then after Swami has demonstrated a little bit of his <laughs> wonderful humor, then we'll have a dialogue with Steve Berman, who's an who's an expert on on the psychology and uses of humor. The interesting thing about these two guests is they actually inhabit the same body. But first, Swami Beyondananda, but I think John wants to say something in addition. You said it so beautifully, Roger. I don't know what I can add. I've just said I've been familiar with you, Swami, for many years, and I went to graduate school in the Bay Area. They had a, a wonderful community-free newspaper, which was all I could afford as a graduate student, and I, I can't require Common Ground, I think it was. 
Yeah. Anyway, so I read your stuff for years and loved it. So when Roger suggested that we invite you, I was I was very in favor of it. And I I've always had a comedic bent. And in junior high, I spent a lot of my academic time in the hall because of my smart ass comments that I would make. So I hopefully I learned over the years to to keep that in check. But that was kind of where my comedic career went and ended. I ended up in the assistant principal's office a lot. And that time in Texas, they were really into corporal punishment. So I paid for my jokes. So anyway, you know, we've had a lot of amazing guests on the show, some of the best minds and beautiful souls and hearts and creativity. But today, right now, I want to invite everybody to journey with us beyond Ananda. (laughs) Well, can I say hello? What a great introduction. And you're absolutely right. The best thing about comedy is nobody takes it seriously. And that is the secret weapon of comedy because so many things can come in onto the radar. So as you know, I, I know I'm I'm looking at you both. You're very, I can tell, very spiritually evolved. And you understand that each of us already has the answers within. It's matching them with the corresponding questions. That is the challenge. And so if you have an answerable question for the Swami, the Swami will have a questionable answer for you. Pretty good. Well, I have lots of questions. But... Yeah, I got lots of questions. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I am wanted for questioning. I understand that. <laughs> well, you've been at this game for a long time, Swami. So, And you integrate humor and spirituality in a way I've never seen anyone do before. So maybe you could say, tell us what your spiritual philosophy is. Well, I have a very simple spiritual philosophy. I am a fundamentalist with the accent on the fun. You see, because the, uh, the, not to be confused with the fundamentalist with the accent on the mental, right? So you see the fundamentalist, they say heaven is above us. The fundamentalists say heaven is where we make it. So why don't we go for heaven on earth just for the hell of that? Hmm? Because we're not here to earn God's love. We're here to spend it. Yes. And as a fundamentalist, I believe life is a joke, but God is laughing with us not at us. The creator is watching the comedy channel. We're what's on. Hmm? We are given free choice in life. We get to decide whether or not we laugh. So if you want to be miserable, go right ahead, whatever makes you happy. Okay, Swami, and I've heard, I've been told, I have read that you are spearheading a movement, which you call the great upwising. Could you tell us a little about that? Okay, first, a minor, minor correction. The whole idea of a spear for a head, I I, I find that very distasteful. So I prefer to use the term spearheading, spearheading. The world is round. We're rounding up all of us to be in this together. Now, in the old days, when people were dissatisfied with the way things are, or as we call it, the situation, when people are dissatisfied with the situation, there would be a, a revolutionary uprising to overthrow the system. Now at that we are more advanced and we're on the spiral upward, we want to create an evolutionary upwising to overgrow the system. And it is a very simple four-step program, guaranteed mathematically to work three times faster than 12-step. Hmm? So it's four steps. Wake up, wise up, grow up, show up. Very similar to Ken Wilber's, but not the same. Hmm? Wake up to the illusion of separation, that we've been divided into, into these tribes fighting one another rather than using our energy together. Wise up 
to the power of love and coherence. We're much better together. Grow up from children of God to adults of good, where we begin to take responsibility for our actions in, in the world and show up on a new playing field, ready to play a new game, thrival for each and all. Now, I know many people say, I, I know what you're thinking, Swami, you are proposing a sane world, you must be crazy. But this is the way forward, particularly if we make a, take a very important fifth step, and that is to take a vow of levity. Because given the gravity of the world situation, gravity is a downer, let levity lift us up. This is called the levitational puzzle. Like this. How many people have we met who say, "My, I, say, I want to uplift humanity, and their faces look like this? Okay, well, you want to uplift, start with the corners of your cheek, of your mouth, and uplift that in a smile. It changes the chemistry of your body. It actually creates feel-good hormones, you know? You know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Norman Cousins. He was a writer about 50 years ago, diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. He checked into a hotel room with candid camera reruns and Marx Brothers movies, and he got well. And he wrote a book called Anatomy of an Illness. And at that point, the medical establishment decided that they are going to study the healing power of laughter, which is kind of like, well, it works in practice, but does it work in theory? Hmm? And when they found out the physiology of human, <laughs> yes, some of these are time released. That's right. People may laugh tomorrow for no Especially reason. On this side of the park here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. Well, you know, again, sometimes uh, they, these take a while to, to detonate. So when they looked at the physiology of laughter, they found out that when we laugh, it creates these hormones called endorphins, which are our natural painkillers. Laughing improves immune function, and believe it or not, laughing lowers the blood pressure because it causes our blood vessels to dilate, which is far better than having them die early, right? I want mine to die as late as possible. And so one of the great powers of the great upwising is simultaneously using the power of laughter to bring joy and celebration and perspective to our world as we recognize that we are all part of the same one world, and yet we're all one with the same universal oneness, and yet each of us is totally unique, just like everybody else. So that is the upwising, recognizing the uniqueness of every individual in the context of the greater good. Right. <laughs> well, we could certainly use some up upwising. <laughs> we got a lot of problems, and it seems like there's so many crises headed our way. How do you... What do you make of this situation and how do you respond? Well, you know, it has been said, my alter ego will talk about the book that he wrote with Bruce Lipton, the cellular biologist, and Bruce says that crisis precipitates evolution. And if we look around us at the confluence of all of these crises, we can say, looks like the chances of precipitation are about 100%. Hmm? And so in the midst of all of these crises is a great evolutionary opportunity that for the first time in recorded human history, there is enough consciousness and awareness and connection between people for us to actually consciously evolve, to consciously shift the focus from the me or you world of dominate or be dominated to the world where we actually all honor one another, each and all. Now, it's understandable. We are traumatized through our DNA and through our history. We've lived 5,000 years under the rule of the lowest common dominator. And the golden rule has been overruled by the rule of gold. The rule of gold rule is 
do to unto others before they can do to unto you. Hmm? <laughs> that, this, let's face it, has left us with a lot of residue to metabolize. And so the great evolutionary challenge that we have right now, can we undo the doo-doo that has been done or will the done doo-doo be our undoing? And that is where we are at this evolutionary moment. <laughs> okay. Well, that doesn't sound as promising as I was hoping, <laughs> but still. <laughs> I don't want to make promises I can't keep. You know, I mean, people, yeah, people, uh, the first thing you want to know is, Swami, are we going to make it? Is it going to work? And I have to channel for you the words of the great philosopher and center fielder, Willie Mays. And many years ago, when I was a kid, Willie Mays was being interviewed by the great sportscaster, Howard Cosell. So I'll channel the interview for you now. It went like this. We're talking with Willie Mays. Willie, let me ask you this. Will the Giants win the pennant this year, Willie Mays? And Willie Mays said, I don't know, Howard. That's what we're going to play the game to find out. <laughs> so that is the game. It's called the world game, which beats the heck out of the end of the world game, which is where some people seem to be going. <laughs> Swami, since I was starting grad school, gosh, it was mid to late 80s in, in the Bay Area, there's been a, a huge just uprising of the power of meditation and common parlance. It's, you know, it's on uh, front of Time magazine. I mean, it's everywhere and people don't think you're, you're really super strange, esoteric. It's been recognized that it's an important thing. But one of the, the new words that has come into parlance and common usage is the word mindfulness. Ah, yes. So what, what could you tell us about your, your take on, on what we're talking about when we say that? Well, one of the reasons why mindfulness is so important these days is because we are inundated with so much information that many people are suffering from mindfulness, right? In fact, I <laughs> at one point expanded my mind so much I couldn't fit through my door. And I finally had to go to a shrink. <laughs> but but actually, in, in the past number of years, to deal with mindfulness, I have been practicing mindfulness. And I went to, by the way, I went to a week-long silent retreat. And it was so quiet, you can hear an opinion drop. Hmm? <laughs> That's how quiet it was. And my great mindfulness teacher gave me the tip for being totally mindful and peaceful. He said, there's two steps. Number one, you want to clear your mind of all thoughts. Number two, you want to focus on the center of yourself. And it has absolutely worked. I've tried it. And now I'm thoughtless and self-centered. <laughs> Congratulations. <Okay. That's> <laughs> yes, exactly. I've joined everybody else. <laughs> yeah, some of us started there. <laughs> uh, so... What's then your take on enlightenment? How do you tell if you're enlightened? Oh, this is huge. I'm so excited that you're going to channel this. Yes, really. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, enlightening can strike at any time, so be careful. It could happen. I follow that famous saying, before enlightenment, do the laundry. After enlightenment, do the laundry. But it's 40% brighter. <laughs> so you, you can't really tell if anybody is enlightened or not. But I'll tell you something, if they make other people happy around them, if they have a field that's radiating happiness and so on, rather than uh, trying to get happiness from the outside, if they're radiating it from the inside, that's a pretty good sign. And in fact, it might even be better than being enlightened because it is allowing your light to fully shine. And the enlightened ones have called this fulfillment. 
<laughs> and, and if their clothes are somewhat brighter than normal, that would be a, a clue too, I take it. I would say so, exactly like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I, that's why a lot of the enlightened people are now people of color. That's all. <laughs> you got that. Turquoise, purple, any color, doesn't matter. This is all, every, every color counts in, the, in this new world. Yes. I, I have to say, just to add that one of the best tests of enlightenment I ever heard was by a psychiatrist, uh, Arthur Dykeman, who said, if you really want to know if someone's enlightened, ask their spouse. <laughs> that was a very good test. Exactly. Because if, you, if, you're home, if you're home alone with somebody, you know, and, and again, these are times where we all have to metabolize these shadow pieces of ourselves. And laughter, I call it self-facing laughter, where you lovingly laugh in your own face and you're laughing in the face of your ego. A lot of people are talking about how do I release the grip of the ego? And I have developed a simple three-word mantra to release the grip of the ego. It goes like this, ego, egoing, egon, like that. And if that doesn't work, I would use mental floss. Back and forth twice a day, you'll prevent truth decay. <laughs> okay, here, here's here's another one for you. Hey, can I pry a joke out on you? Sure, I, sure, I sure. thought that I said, Roger, we should like invent a joke to share, and but it was like telling a joke to a statue of Buddha who is not smiling. Okay, <laughs> oh, okay. So <laughs> I thought you know, people have said that we make a good team, that we have this balance. That I'm saying, uh, uh, Roger, as as somebody who's walked the Buddhist path for many years. He, he's a, an amazing represent, representative of or the presence of emptiness in a human being. And I'm more of an integral Christian and I'm really full of it. So <laughs> I was thinking that might, you know, maybe that's the, the secret of our chemistry. He laughed, Roger. He did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I well, actually, that's really good because I have been told so many times, Swami, you are so full of emptiness. But actually, that is really very, very true, because I have discovered in the course of my wanderings over many lifetimes, I have discovered the one thing that is guaranteed to solve all of your problems instantly. And I happen to have it right here. Are you interested? Uh, uh, yes, please. Amen, okay, brother. this is it. It is a box of nothing. Absolutely nothing. Whatever your problem is, nothing will help. Right? Roger, I have to tell you something. Nothing is known to cure baldness right? <laughs> Nothing gets out those impossible stains. Nothing is completely safe to eat. Nothing lasts forever. And uh, of course, nothing beats sex. And nothing is made in the USA, right here. So I know a woman came to me, she said, Swami, nothing satisfies my husband. I said, terrific, buy him some. Yes. So whatever your problem is, nothing will help. That is the pureness of emptiness. Because nothing means no thing. People begin to put their faith into things. And consequently, they begin to think that a thing is going to change their life. But no thing, it is no thing. Love is no thing. Spirit is no thing. These are the things that are beyond the things that are the things that make a difference. Awesome. <laughs> That was a conversation stopper. <laughs> yeah, right. I have nothing to say. I have, I have nothing, nothing to say. say. No, <laughs> yeah, here's one. It's it's very, yeah, I, can't, I don't want to use the word serious. Anyway, it's loaded with potential and something that we've been living through in our times and very much so in the United States. And it's also happening, according to my friends in other countries around the world, is this radical polarization of society. 
this side and that side. So they can't even, you know, we can't even talk or, you know, do Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas or whatever without avoiding politics and anything that has any depth to it. So what would you recommend or what's your take on that, Swami? Well, I, I have to agree with you. I have a deeply divided body politic in America. Half the people believe our system is broken and the other half believe that it's fixed. We have been divided into these two tribes, red tribe Republicans, blue tribe Democrats, spending all of their energy arguing about whether it is worse to kill the born or the unborn. And meanwhile, the Commonwealth has been stolen by a very small percentage of the uncommonly wealthy, and the burden is being put on the not yet born. Hmm? My political position is radical center, deep center. We need to create a sane and sacred center that transcends both religion and non-religion. We need to bring left and right, front and center, to dance to face the music and dance together to turn the funk into function and leave the junk at the junction. And in order to do this, we need to learn from the native peoples. When there was a decision to be made, they would sit in sacred circle. Yes. And so we need to bring red tribe and blue tribe together to sit in sacred circle and talk until they're purple in the face. Because only by being together as one purple people can the peeps outnumber the perps. And that is our purpose, people, to come together around a sane and sacred center, the virtues and values that unite us. So instead of being divided and conquered, we can unite and prevail and come together. And actually, instead of fighting over these issues, over problems, face them together. You know, all of the focus over the past number of years on identity issues. We need to leave the identity issues and focus on the identical issues. Clean air, clean water, clean food, clean government that everybody faces. When we face these together, we have an absolute opportunity to evolve as a people and as individual spiritual humans. Whoa, there was a lot in there. <laughs> yes, there was. And it wasn't that funny, but man, was it ever true. And uh, if, you ever, if you ever want to run for office, let me know. I'll be, I'll support it. Well, you know, I did have a Swami for President campaign <laughs> 20 years ago. And, and it was, we don't need a new president. We need a new precedent. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, where the government does our bidding, not the bidding of the highest bidder. And part of the great upwising is taking individual and collective responsibility rather than putting it on this group or that group and blaming. So to really solve the problems, I think part of this has to be to look at the other person's point of view and find the truth hidden in the picture. Find the truth hidden in the opponent, opposing points of view, because from those truths, we can build the whole fabric of what we all agree on and what we want to create together. Off the battlefield, onto the playing field. All right. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what's your secret for staying sane in the midst of all this craziness we're in? Well, you know, I think that the, that what is one of the great ways of saying, uh, I, the way to create a sane asylum is to find things to lovingly laugh at. I call it cosmic comic consciousness. And to develop cosmic comic consciousness, what you need to do is to begin to, well, the first principle is it's a joke, laugh. Because if you're able to take not the life-threatening situations, but the laugh-threatening situations that you have, 
If you're able to soften that through the perspective of humor, then you get new ideas, you get a healing, and you forget to be upset. Now, sometimes you have to be angry. For that, I've invented a new practice called tantrum yoga. Tantrum yoga. Yes, use your anger to heat your home in the wintertime. Very powerful. Tantrum yoga is where you hold your breath until God gives you what you want. And that is how Krishna turned blue. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> no, I had to. Will there be a blue Krishna without you? Blue Krishna without you. <laughs> Sorry, the jacket, uh, this is the Elvis jacket. He comes out from time to time. <laughs> you channel a lot of people. <laughs> I'm telling you, they're waiting in line. Uh, you know, everybody wants to get into a body these days because, frankly, Blonde or brunette people and bodies have more fun. They're all lined up, and it's very frustrating for these disembodied ones waiting in line, waiting in line. Sam Cook, another Saturday night, and I got nobody. He's waiting. He's waiting to get reincarnated. So while you're waiting to get reincarnated, you can be channeled, right? And so I travel the higher planes all the time, and sometimes I'm sitting next to somebody who would like to have a channeled message. Can I share a story with you? You Please. certainly may, yes. Okay. This happened to me a while back. I was praying for peace in the Middle East. Have you ever prayed for peace in the Middle East? Yeah. Okay. There's a famous story about an old man in Jerusalem. Every day he goes to the Wailing Wall, 25 years to pray for peace. Pray for peace every day. A reporter from the Jerusalem Post finds out about it. And she sees him. She was, he's pointed out to her. And he's a very modest man. So she approaches him gently. And she says, I understand. Excuse me. I understand. Every day you go to the Wailing Wall to pray for peace. And you haven't missed a day in 25 years. He goes, that's right. That's right. And, he, and she says, tell me, what is it like to go to the Wailing Wall and pray for peace every day for 25 years? And he says, it's like talking to a wall. So <laughs> given that conflict, I'm sitting on, after I did my prayer, I'm sitting, I'm on the higher plane. I'm sitting next to this guy. He looks so familiar. I go, wow, you look very familiar. He says, yes, I am George Gershwin. I said, wow, George Gershwin, the, the great composer. What are you doing these days? And he said, I'm decomposing. <laughs> he, had a great, he had a great sense of humor. But he was very concerned that we have the uh, Israelis and the Palestinians. Their language is so similar. They're like cousins. And yet they cannot seem to get along to save their lives. And so he gave me a song to share, a song for peace in the Middle East. I will share it with you now. It goes like this. You say salam and I say shalom. I throw a bomb, I blow up your home. Salam, shalom, we blow up our home. Let's call the old thing off. You say baraka, I say baruka. I spin the dreidel, you toke the hookah. Baruka, baraka, this warfare, it's caca. Let's call the old thing off. And so, if we call the old thing off, we'll all be right. And so, if we all are right, well, there's no need to fight. I eat the kasha, you eat the kibbe. We both dig falafel, but never pork ribby. 
to Kasha, to Kibbe, forget the pork ribby. At least there's one thing we agree on. Hmm? Haven't we had enough? Let's call the old thing off. Oh, yeah. Let's call the old thing off. Uh-huh. Let's call the old thing off. All right. <laughs> that needs to get out in every every radio station in the Middle yeah, East. Yeah, it's, it's not easy to write a funny anti-war song. Um, I think you pulled it off. <laughs> I I, don't, I actually did a performance in the Bay Area. It was like a holiday party uh, for the uh, Israeli-Palestinian Reconciliation Group. And they asked me to do that song. I, I was a bit concerned because, again, people getting blown up is a, is a very delicate issue. And after the show, I was so pleased that people felt that that was a healing that took place because... As uh, Benjamin Franklin didn't quite say, it's far better to laugh together than cry separately. So that's laughter and food. There was great food there. Laughter and food is a great way to bring people together to focus on what we all have in common so that we're able to handle the problems. What we have right now is the media. And I have to be very, very honest with you. The mainstream media is a brainwashing machine stuck on spin. And so there is nothing but narratives. There's this narrative versus that narrative and nothing in the middle. We need to come together at this sane and sacred center and begin to have conversations that are rehumanizing. And then we begin need to begin to work together to accomplish something we all want to accomplish. I want to share a story, very important story. It happened about five or six years ago, and you may have heard about it. There were some bathers who were stuck in a riptide off the coast of Florida, and they were going to drown. And the people on the beach made a human chain to bring these people to safety, and they were successful. That is a great metaphor. Instead of the tug of war that these two sides are pulling apart, we need a tug of peace where we all pull together in the same direction. That is the evolutionary focus. Instead of fighting each other, using that energy constructively to construct something that everybody wants. May it be so. May it be so. May it be so. Yeah, yeah. Well, we seem to be on, on the topic of the great issues of our time. What's your take on, uh, on the climate issue? Well, you know, in order to deal with the climate issue, we need to create political climate change. Warmer hearts and cooler heads. That is our job, because when an issue as important as that gets stuck inside of a narrative, I would put it, instead of calling it climate change, I would say we need to actually restore the balance on the earth. That's what we really need. We need to rebuild the soil and so on. What the problem with some of the solutions to the climate change issue is that the people who are least able to make the changes are the ones who are forced to make the changes. So we've, in the process of dealing with this crisis, we've virtually eliminated the middle class in this country, and we've deplatformed the working classes as well, because it's very, very hard for people to afford to buy the gas or fuel or whatever to go to work and do all of these things. And instead of all of this big from the top down, we need to do it from the grassroots up relocalize our economy. That is how we do it. We regrow the soil 
locally, regrow the microbiome, and we heal the planet that way, rather than imposing strictures on people that may or may not work. So I think that this is partly, it's an issue that requires conversation, bringing people together and looking at the problems instead of people looking at the problems from opposing points of view, people using their point of view and looking at the problem out there so that we have a full spectrum of solutions that are available to us. And that is how we unite to actually solve the problems of too many humans, too many things at the same time. Beautiful. Yeah, you're a good balance of profundity and humor, Swami. We have another guest that's coming on. His name is Steve. But before Steve's come on, I have one more question that... Well, it's kind of essential to our experience in our lifetimes. And it's just everyone who's contemplating the path or on the path or even if never thought of a path wants to know is what is your secret for human happiness? Well, I learned the secret. Uh, now, Roger, you're a psychiatrist, right? Uh, so I have to tell you that the happiest individual I have ever encountered was a psychiatrist. First of all, you walk into his presence, there was this glow. He actually had a glow that anybody could recognize. And I said to him, I said, uh, he was just, his face was beaming like the sun. I said, you know, I, you're a psychiatrist. He said, that's right. And I said, and I looked at his hair. It was kind of gray. I said, you've been practicing for a while. He says, 25 years. I said, how can you spend 25 years listening to people's problems and look the way you do? And he said, who listens? So that is one of my secrets. <laughs> Some people say the secret to happiness is take a vow of silence, stop talking. I go, stop listening. Stop listening. We want to actually, instead of following the herd, we want to follow the unheard. If you want to listen to something, listen to silence, because that is where the secret of peace is. Yeah. Ah, uh, indeed. Well, maybe that's a, a good time to transition to our to our second guest. Okay. Oh, you're second guesting me. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to disappear for a moment, and I'm going to fly away to my higher plane, and the next person you see will be Steve Behrman, who's also funny, but, you know, he's not me. Okay, well, you, ready? You set a high standard, Swami. So I, I set a high standard. Okay. Okay, we'll see you in a minute as somebody else. So let me reintroduce Steve Behrman, who's an author, humor, humorous, political activist in his own unique way, who's been channeling Swami Beyond Ananda. He's the author of, or co-author with the cellular biologist Bruce Lipton of the book uh, Spontaneous Evolution. And he uh, regularly, now that COVID's over, he'll be regularly touring the U.S. again. So he may be coming to a, a city near you. So, Steve, maybe you could just start by telling us how you began to channel Swami Beyond Ananda. Well, I, I want to go back to something John said, because I was that kid, the kid that you were talking about, who was disciplined for humor and all of that. I was that kid. And the way do you recognize that that's your gift? It's the first time you're in the lunchroom and you make another kid laugh so hard that milk comes out of their nose. That is the sign from God. You know that, John, right? <laughs> so I was that kid. However, however, I had a career in my 20s. I had a career as a teacher. I landed in Washington, D.C. at the perfect time. Another teacher and I started an alternative high school in Washington, D.C. 
We wrote a book about it called No Particular Place to Go, Making of a Free High School, published by Simon & Schuster. It was a you know important book at that time. And then I ended up as a teacher. That was my first career. I, I taught ethnic studies and labor history at Wayne State University. I taught a creative writing class at University of Michigan. And I lost my Wayne State job because they had to hire the tenured people to take over. And the only job I could get at that point was doing tree work for the city of Ann Arbor, taking down trees that have Dutch elm disease. Seriously. Now, I'm going to make it to my Jewish mother, bless her heart. I could see she was worried about something. I said, what's the matter? She was afraid that I would catch Dutch elm disease. I said, mom, people don't get Dutch elm disease. Dogs get it. She goes, what happens to dogs? I said, they lose their bark. So anyway, I'm at this job and it's kind of a dark night, right? I'm getting up, I'm, I'm driving a snowplow at night, right? All night long. And I get up in the morning and they put this new guy with me who is a brilliant psychologist disguised as a truck driver. And he and I together created an anonymous humorous paper, kind of like The Onion, kind of like Andy Borowitz. And we created a newspaper for the guys that we worked with at the shop, and it was an amazingly educational and transformational experience for me because all of the humor that we wrote and did and produced was about them. It's about them. Some of it actually happened. Some of it is slightly exaggerated and some of it was totally made up. And they had to decide what was what. And what I learned is humor is a powerful tool for delivering truth. It's a powerful tool for bringing people together. And education. I mean, we use terms that nobody in the shop understood, but they found out what those terms meant because their name was in a sentence with those terms. Yep. You know, so that was my first. I, I mean, I always had humor, but like so many people who have a, a skill or gift, you know, that's ah, one of the things I do. And so what I realized is that that was a very powerful thing for me to do. And the Swami character, I say I got struck by enlightening during a brainstorm. The character came to me and I was in the right place at the right time and began performing 1986. So it's almost 37 years. And my wife, Trudy, and I went out on the road with the traveling Swami and Trudy show. And it's been a tremendous gift in my life to be able to use humor because otherwise I would be insufferable. <laughs> you know, because I'm very serious. I, I was a political science major, although never got quite so far in the field to actually dissect a politician. Never got that far. But I've always been interested in the serious things in life. And the humor perspective has allowed me to be as sane as I could possibly be under the circumstances and also to provide something for other people. So I I consider it a blessing that this character came to me. Yeah. And, and you, you know, you could have been humor about baseball, about sports, about Hollywood. I mean, there's all these different things, but you, you know, you chose a spiritual character and I don't know if it, it felt like he chose you or you chose him, but how did that come about where you said, okay, this is it. And I'm here to, to walk this path, a spiritual path, but in a way that I don't know anybody else has ever done it. Well, you know, first of all, I think all of these things came together at the same time. In 1980, a friend and I started a publication called Pathways in Ann Arbor, 
which is one of the first holistic papers. Like you'd, you'd mentioned Common Ground. It was like Common Ground. And so what happened was people were hungry for perspective because people took their, their spirituality very seriously. And so I remember that at the time in this personal growth spirituality movement, the things that people were concerned about in their personal lives, they wanted to have more money and they wanted to lose weight. So Swami actually created a mantra to help people bring more money into their lives and lose weight at the same time. Want to hear it? Sure. It was, <laughs> yeah. everything I eat turns to money and my drawers are full of cash. <laughs> <laughs> Great realms of prosperity. And so what happened was I was able to poke fun at the extremism and the shadow pieces of what at that time was called New Age spirituality, but it but it encompassed holistic health and various forms of personal growth and even various forms of traditional spirituality. Like one of my favorite ones, the whole idea is people say you should be you should be non-judgmental. So the Swami created his vision of non-judgment day, right? That we're all looking forward to non-judgment day. And that's when then everyone lays down their arms. They're gonna look pretty funny with their arms on the ground, their butt sticking up in the air but you can't attack anybody in that position. So we always, you know, it was always about looking at the unexamined shadow pieces, you know, and we call that um, pumping ironies, taking ironic things and bringing them to consciousness so people can get a perspective on the human absurdities without demeaning actual individuals, but really looking at the patterns and laughing together at the patterns of human behavior. Stay tuned for part two as Swami Beyond Ananda transforms and transcends into the author and activist Steve Behrman, who discusses humor as a healing antidote to the insanities of our time. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.